Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. I'm Jess Pierce. <laughs> I guess that's a good way to start. Um, so I am, um, I do a lot of things in the wine industry, but it's been a, a long journey to get there. And there's been a lot of people that have been very influential in that. When I started thinking about doing this interview, you know, I initially went to a timeline of like, okay, what has my life been like? What are the, the big events that have changed who I am and created who I am as a person? And really, it came down to people more than anything. Who are the people that have guided me in the directions and steered me the ways and given me the advice that have brought me to this place? And there was a long list of people um, that really stuck out. So I'm just gonna tell you my story kind of through a timeline of the people that have influenced me. Perfect. Um, I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So I grew up in a college town, which um, definitely relied heavily on football, on food, on music, on parties, um, you know, about an hour outside of New Orleans. So we spent a lot of time there as well. And it was definitely that, that very Southern um, camaraderie of, of big food events and not really about wine at all. Um, the people were drinking beers or cocktails, things like that, but I didn't grow up around wine. Um, I grew up in um, kind of a conservative Christian household, so wine was a little more taboo. It was drinks were around, but it wasn't it wasn't something that was celebrated, and it was something I kind of shied away from. I didn't start drinking until I was 19. Uh, when I got my first job outside of high school, I was going to college at LSU. I started um, immediately out of high school, uh, Louisiana State University, and I thought I wanted to be a writer. So I started going to school for English and took some writing classes and that didn't, that wasn't really where my interest ended up going. Um, I ended up taking some art classes and got really excited about that. Uh, so I ended up in the studio art department in photography and sculpture, um, doing a lot of work with my hands, a lot of really interesting um, building projects, uh, a lot of sculpture projects where I was doing metal casting and things like that. And I thought that was super interesting. I liked really seeing something from an idea on paper to a tangible three-dimensional object, and that was really exciting for me. Um, photography was definitely a way I leaned as well and just really enjoyed kind of capturing uh, an image and telling a story behind it. The story was always very important to me as well. When I was in college, I was um, you know, supporting myself through college, fun jobs, donating plasma, um, just selling smoothies at the Smoothie King. That was a big part of high school, of college, high school into college for me. And uh, my mom was seeing this hairdresser for um, her hairdos, and her hairdresser was like, oh, we need a hostess at this restaurant where I work part-time. And so my mom called me and she was like, hey, this girl I know wants you to be the hostess at their restaurant. So I was 19 and I was um, super interested in it because my mom was like, oh, you get tips and, and restaurant people are fun. So I started working uh, at this restaurant called Pave. And Pave was um, a brand new restaurant uh, and it was supposed to be like cool, like hip, Mar everything like 20 different kinds of martinis this was like early 2000s when there's like espresso martinis everywhere and I before I started drinking I started bartending 
which seems weird. How do you know what the, they're going to be? Oh, it's recipes. You know, it was, it was that at that point in my life. And so I started hosting and bartending and then waiting tables at that restaurant. Um, and from there, worked at other restaurants in Baton Rouge as I went through college um, and ended up working at the service industry bar in town called the Port Royal. The Port Royal was kind of a seedy dive bar that was attached to a Waffle House. <laughs> it was really special. Um, definitely a place where everyone, after they got off work at the restaurants, would come out and have drinks and, you know, it was Jaeger bombs and, and Budweiser's and that sort of thing. It was a real fun place, but I met tons of people at that bar and ended up getting plugged into the fine dining crews that would come through there. So um, these folks that worked at a, a fine dining French, like 20 seat restaurant, that was kind of the most high end restaurant in town. They came in one night and they asked for something they didn't think I knew how to make. I forget what drink it was, but it was like a Boulevardier or something. And I just, I've always loved Campari, so I happened to knew that one and it wasn't super common for that bar and they were like oh we need a bartender at our restaurant do you want to start working there I was like yeah sure I'll come see you tomorrow uh, meanwhile I'm still like 20 years old at this point I'm not old enough to drink but you can bartend in Louisiana at that point once you were 18 so I started working at this fine dining restaurant started learning about fine dining service and hospitality um, and got my my foot in the door in that world in a way that was really interesting to me. It was a little restaurant called Brant's Maisonette. And it was, it was like Swiss chalet style French cooking, a really interesting chef that, you know, threw knives across the kitchen and screamed at people and kind of iconic guy, French training. Um, but I liked that world and I liked the food that was from there. It wasn't like our, our southern Louisiana, like seafood boils and barbecues. It was, it was pretty food. It was like delicate food. And and it really captured my attention. Um, definitely just selling, you know, a lot of, you know, just generic wines, though. The wine program wasn't super great there, but the food was really on point. Um, that evolved into a Fleming Steakhouse, which opened in Baton Rouge, and I got hired on the opening team of Fleming's um, at the Steakhouse, and they do a really intensive um, opening like training program for their their opening trainers or their opening staff and I got um, trained by this woman named Marion Optahar who was a Dutch master of wine this is before I even knew what a master of wine was and she put us through this really intense wine training and we did service training and it was the first time I've really been trained to do something like that and learned the technical parts of fine dining it kind of winged it at the the smaller places but this was this was a little more precise and it was a really eye-opening for me in the way that people could have careers in wine the way that she did I thought she was so interesting she was just smart and bold and focused and and really approachable in a way that I had not seen in a lot of wine people as well um, and I, I like that approachability in her and so I started bartending there as well, and I would taste along with the, the buyer from that restaurant because I was always behind the bar setting up. The wine reps would come in, I'd taste through the wines, and I got really excited about wine at Fleming's. They had a program of, it was 100 wines by the glass that were offered. They had this crazy argon system in it, and it was, it was really impressive. And I got to taste through the wines really regularly, and it blew my mind. I mean, these were, these were really interesting flavors that I didn't realize could happen with wine. You know, when, when I was growing Growing up at home, it was beer, it was cocktails. When we had wine, it was kind of a jug of Franzia that had been on top of the cabinet in the stove like area. Um, and we would just have like a little red wine with dinner. And I was like, oh, I guess I just don't like red wine, but it's it's because I wasn't drinking delicious red wine. <laughs> um, 
So, so that really opened my eyes to what wine could be. Uh, and I had finished college at that point and was just, I had kind of always knew that I wanted to live somewhere else. I knew that Louisiana wasn't the end all be all for me, but I wasn't sure where I fit in to the world. But I did know that I really liked food and wine and then the idea that that could be something that I could focus my life towards was a possibility. So I started thinking if I was gonna move, where was I gonna go that I could do something in food and wine and live in a cool place as well. So I started thinking about it and looking at all of these different wine regions. And I kind of did it through the lens of that job at Fleming's when I was tasting wines. And the wines from Oregon that we had were Domaine Druin, Sokol Blosser, and Domaine Serene. Those were the, th the only three that I think we could get down there and you know, this was 2005. And they were really interesting to me. They were very different than the other styles I had tasted. Um, I thought about going to California because there were definitely some wines down there I really liked as well. But Oregon kind of seemed like the Wild West in a way that was super approachable to me back then. You know, this was this was kind of when you know wine tourism wasn't a thing in the Willamette Valley like it is today. 15 years ago, it, it just wasn't as established. The infrastructure wasn't there. The showcase wineries weren't there. So I decided to come check it out, and I um, I started kind of planning my trip, and then Hurricane Katrina hit. And I knew I wanted to leave Louisiana, but that really sealed the deal for me. I was just, I decided for sure that it was time to go. It was a pretty terrible time down there, pretty just really sad and really awful. Um, and I, I knew I didn't want to live through another hurricane like that. You know, just growing up living with a lot of hurricanes and having bad ones happen pretty often. It's, and it's even more prevalent now. You know, that's it's it's hard. It's like anything. It's like the wildfires we have here. It's these scary things that that just make it really difficult to live places sometimes. And after Katrina and just knowing I wanted to leave and kind of having an idea about Oregon, I ended up visiting um, right after that. I had one friend who lived here and he was like, come crash with me for a week and see what Portland is like. And it was, uh, it was in February, it was like February fake out, just that we used to have these you know, gray winters and then that week in February where it was just blue skies and 70 degrees and it just had the Simpsons clouds all over the city and just ridiculous. And I was like, yes, this is where I'm moving. So I knew I could get a job in some sort of steakhouse, but there wasn't a Fleming's here. So while I was here on that trip, I went to the Morton Steakhouse. I didn't tell him I was visiting. I pretended like I lived here and used my friend's address. And I applied for the job and I got hired. And they were like, you start next week. And I was like, oh yeah, okay. I'll, I'll totally be here on Tuesday. Why wouldn't I? I totally live in Portland. That's easy. And I flew back to Louisiana. I threw all my stuff in my car and I drove up and showed up the day before my first shift at Morton Steakhouse. Um, so it was it was kind of a scramble getting here, but I um, I got on my feet and Morton's was an amazing place to get introduced to some of the best people that are still great friends of mine today. I was working there at a very very just kind of key time where all of these amazing people who are still in the industry today had had been at this restaurant. Um, you know, it's the crisp white linen mahogany, all dark kind of classic steakhouse, and um, it had just the most interesting crew of people, you know, bartenders and restaurant managers and wine people that I still interact with almost every day today um, had worked at that store and 
I, it, it was pretty amazing to, to get introduced to Portland with that group of people being your first friend group. So it was dynamic in a way that we were always going out wine tasting or drinking cool bottles together or talking about the interesting parts of the industry. So I felt like pretty quickly I got kind of plugged into what made sense for the direction I wanted to go in Portland. And I knew I wanted to get my foot in the door at a winery, but I didn't know what I could do there. I had no experience really being in wine at all. And one of the wineries that I knew about from Louisiana was Domaine Serene. So I went to Domaine Serene and applied for a job and they hired me in the tasting room. So I worked at Domaine Serene um, for over three years, um, like part-time working at Morton's, and then I quit Morton's and was just working there for a little while, um, and then continued in kind of some part-time capacity or something in the tasting room for, for several years. And I got introduced to some really cool people and, and found out a lot of really cool things about the wine industry through that lens. Domain Serene was one of the big wineries at the time. You know, there are a lot of big wineries now, I mean, but, but they, were, they were it back then and everyone came through there if they were coming in town for something we got to do the cool dinners we were in all the restaurants and it's kind of a darling winery at that time um, which was really cool to be a part of so the access that I had to the industry was pretty amazing and I remember the first summer that I worked at Domain Serene it's probably my first summer in 2007 they were like hey we have this extra ticket to this thing do you want to go to it and I was like yeah sure what is it and they were like oh it's a salmon bake at IPNC and I was like, cool, yeah, I like salmon, I'll go eat. Had no idea what I was going into and ended up at the IPNC Salmon Bake, which, you know, is iconic for just the throwdown of a party. It is something that is really special. And when I went to that and saw the camaraderie and saw these big tables of food with people kind of sharing and, and the excitement in the air, it just brought me back to these really fun parties that I enjoyed in Louisiana growing up. And it was really the first time I felt like home in Oregon was being at that event in IPNC and having that experience with all these wonderful people that I had just met. You know, it, it felt like family. And I knew I had made the right choice by that first summer, you know, being in Oregon for four or five months that I was on my way to, to being in a good spot. So um, it was just after that summer, I um, kind of the summer season ended with wine tourism and I was going to go back into restaurants, but I'd been in the fine dining steak world for a long time and had kind of started immersing myself in more of a Portland way of life. I knew I wanted to work some, somewhere that, you know, was more, a little more sustainable than, than beef all the time, a little more, more, more tight-knit, a little more local, a little more family-run, um, but still wanted to have that really cool hospitality experience. And, but I didn't really know a ton of people that were outside of the restaurant world, didn't know where I wanted to be, so I was looking around on Craigslist and I saw this idea for, um, for uh, a new restaurant that was coming up. They didn't really say what the concept was or it wasn't open yet, but they were looking for a staff, like, come apply. And it, it was one fall day and I just met these guys at a coffee shop over at Al Albina Press in Portland. And it was Jason French and Ben Meyer who started Ned Ludd Restaurant. And we hit it off right away. It was a quick chat, because I think I actually had to go work in the tasting room that day. It was a Saturday morning or something like that. I was like, I'm on my way out, guys. I'm just saying hi. But I remember meeting them and being like, hey, so I don't want to, you know, give people a spiel when I go to the table. I want to just talk to them. I don't want to have to cover my tattoos up. I want, I want to be me. I want to be real in a place. And I want to be excited about the food and wine that I'm serving. 
and I was like, that's what I got. If y'all are interested, give me a call. I got to go to work. And, <laughs> and I got a call from them later that day, and they were like, you're hired. I'm like, what am I hired from? They're like, we don't know yet. Something, it's going to be good. We like you. We'll plug you in. And do you want to help us paint? <laughs> and I was like, what? Who are these jokers? So I showed up and I helped them paint the walls and nail together tables and put the restaurant together a couple weeks before it opens, washing windows and going to Goodwill and buying silverware and all the things to, to open this crazy little wood-fired restaurant. Um, they, they had no machines. That was their big concept. Ned Ludd, the leader of the Luddites. We don't have anything but wood to cook our fire. We don't use any other machines in the process. Yeah, we had electricity. There was a dishwasher in the back. But for all intents and purposes, it was like rustic cooking done in an elevated style. And I feel so lucky for answering that Craigslist ad because Jason French was or still is like one of the, the great mentors of my life. Um, Jason really you know taught me how to how to show real hospitality to people and how to really care about the food and the wine and all of the things um, that, that are part of, of service and of food you know everything goes hand in hand and I became um, very interested in running the wine program super early on, just kind of begging Jason for it. But he had a little bit of wine experience. He had worked at the uh, wine merchant in Boulder and um, felt like he had a good handle on it. But then he was so busy in the kitchen that I just snuck my way in and was like, hey, let's get this wine. Hey, check this out. And he was super responsive to that and, and really helped me um, get my confidence as, as the wine buyer. So I ended up being the first general manager and, and wine buyer for Ned Ludd. Um, and that was, that was one of the, the biggest thing that happened to me in my Oregon experience early on because of the, the kind of other side of the world of people that I met. All of the farmers, all of the ranchers, all of the growers and the makers that I know today were kind of from that foundation. You know, it was a very salt of the earth um, kind of situation. And I feel like that perspective that I got from Ned Ludd really changed the way I thought about a lot of things in life, not just food and wine. It just really made me appreciate, you know, growing things. Growing things wasn't something that I did you know, when I was young. We didn't have a garden and we had a garden in the back of Ned Ludd and I would, you know, go water the garden and pick some weeds before my shift and things like that. And it was just a part of that whole process and it was really something to to get that perspective um, and really, really change what I was thinking and what I wanted to do. Um, I also at that time started doing my Court of Masters some tests and, and training and that sort of thing. Um, got certified as a SOM and I was starting to take ISG classes, the International Sommelier's Guild. Um, so I, I walk into this class for, for the ISG and Erica Landon is my instructor and I never met Erica before. I knew she was at 1001 and had, had known her by reputation, um, but never really interacted with her. Maybe saw her at, at one wine tasting previously, but I was really excited because she seemed really cool and really plugged in and really knowledgeable, but she was also one of those strong women in wine that make wine seem very accessible to people. Um, she's, she's not pretentious about anything. She was very encouraging. and. And I would say that she was another just that she was kind of in a way kind of the, my wine mentor early on and still is to this day. Um, she was very important in, in kind of steering me in the directions of figuring out what I liked in wine and how to talk about it. 
and and I definitely appreciated that so much. So she was like, oh yeah, me and my cute boyfriend, we're starting this wine label and you should talk to him because he sells wine. And so she got me plugged in with Ken Paolo and Ken um, started selling wine to me at Ned Ludd. He was working for some distributors back then as well as starting thinking about their own project, that sort of thing. And um, he always brought in the great wines and I was always excited to see him. And then one day he was like, hey, we got our own wines. It's Walter Scott. This is our first vintage. And I was like, this is great. I'll take it. And I was the first one to put Walter Scott on by the glass in a restaurant in Portland. And I was so excited to be able to do that because it was really good wine and there were people that I loved and wanted to support and just made sense. Um, so I got to do a lot of cool things at Ned Ludd. I got to do a lot of um, these things called wine salons where I bring people together in more of like a like engagement format instead of a proper dinner where people could just talk about ideas and wine and got to meet really cool producers through that as well. We did amazing farm, farm dinners and I feel like in that time I um, I engaged with Oregon as a place and what the, the bounty of it has to offer. I visited wineries and vineyards and did outstanding in the field dinners and camped out places and it was it was really amazing. Um, and I was ready for I was ready for something else at that point. I felt like I wanted to do something other than restaurants and I'll always love restaurants and that's you know that's where I, I came up in this world in restaurants but I thought I want to do something a little more wine focused but I still didn't know exactly what that was and there's so many facets of the wine world you can go into you know and I was like there I need I need more education I need a bigger picture to be able to figure this out so I found this program I had gone to Italy on a on a trip when I was visiting a bunch of Italian wine producers who I sold at Ned Ludd. Uh, the guys at Casa Bruno and Estelle, they hooked me up on this amazing trip and I went through Piedmont and Alto Adige and, and visited these wonderful people and just had the best time. And when I was um, there on this trip, this was maybe, this was a, a January trip, so it was cold and there was a lot of stuff that was closed. Um, but it's the best time to travel if you're working in, in restaurants. And I visited um, this wine producer and he was just lovely and he was like, oh, have you been to the wine bank? And he was like, it's so cool. It's like all the great wines. You need to walk through the wine bank. And I was like, yeah, just give me that address. I'll go see this wine bank. So I get, go drive on this, to this little town and visited the wine bank. Of course it's closed. There's a huge gate around it. It's this tiny little village and it's like a castle. And I'm just like, what is this wine bank castle? Um, so it's like snow everywhere. So I was like, oh, I'll just jump the fence and go see what's in there. Nobody's around, they don't mind. So it's in Italy. So I do that, I jump the fence and I go like peek in the windows. And I was like, oh, there's this like old, um, it's like an old caverns under the castle and they've all been transformed into these wine lockers and all these like little like caves all built into the walls and they're just stuffed with wines just like 70s vintages of Barolo and just these crazy bottles that you've never seen five liters of like 1976s it was it was really something and I was like oh this is cool so I'm like trying to read the sign I'm like wait this is a school what is this school and this building it, it looks it looks like something it's a medieval castle and I just wrote the name down. It's like, okay, I'll figure this out whenever I uh, get back home. And so after that trip and kind of this idea of I wanted to do something else in my, my wine journey, um, when I got home, I Googled the school. It was the University of Gastronomic Sciences. I was like, wow, this sounds really cool. 
um, and they had different master's programs in um, in kind of culinary subjects for some parts of it, but also kind of a cultural version of a culinary world. It almost had more of an idea of kind of a liberal arts college than a cooking school, if that makes sense. It was, um, you know, my the YN program I ended up going to was um, all about human ecology and sustainability and how those things go together. And my, my master's is in cultural landscapes. So, so this program I went to, really let you define whatever your journey was and plug it into that scenario. And so I did wine under the guise of cultural landscapes, right? And you could do that with any sort of specialty project or agriculture. And the things they wanted you to focus on were specialty products. You could focus on coffee, chocolate, tea, olive oil, grapes. Like it had to be something that would ferment and you could you could do your research on it. And so wine was my, my focus through that. And you know, going to that school was really amazing. I I felt I feel like it wasn't as much a school as it was like a like a Hogwarts experience where there's so much magic going on at the same time you're learning from that more than the classes. And we got to you know go to these classes every day with a small group, 25 people from all over the world. There were 13 countries represented in our class of 25. And they would fly in professors to teach us that were masters in their field from different different genres and teach us different things. So um, Corby Coomer was our writing professor. He came in from the New York Times. And the guy who did the King Corn documentary, Ian something, he was our documentary film professor. And it was just crazy. And then the school cafeteria, it was you know the students learning how to cook. But then Alice Waters would come and do a demo for them and be our cafeteria lady that week or Ferran Adria would come in and help the cafeteria kids and it's like it's it's all um, you know the University of Gastronomic Science is all slow food so it's like this like deep ingrained Italian tradition of slow ways of thinking about things and not slow like it's thoughtful it's intentional is the way that they they use the idea of slow mm -hmm. and that was an idea that I had been working towards in Portland that was just amplified when I moved to Italy so I was living in Piedmont um, in a tiny tiny little town um, very close to Alba if, if people know where that is it's um, it was really cool it's called Bra is a weird name for a town and then our little um, castle school was in Palenzo which was like seven kilometers on a bike and so that was our little journey every day but not only did we have um, you know these amazing professors coming in to teach us then one week out of every month they would take us out into the world to learn the practice of our of our um, theory and so we would travel to either a different region in Italy or a different place in Europe and we would go visit producers and we saw all kind of stuff. We did, um, we went to like Puglia and, and Bari and Bredizi and, and did a report on the fishing industry down there. We went to Croatia and did a whole thing about um, the olive groves that grow on islands through the Croatian island chains. We went to Bosnia and did reports on the women that have kind of like come up post-war and rebuilt the, the country. You know, it was, it was a very interesting school and the access they had because of the connections to slow food got you in the door anywhere. 
And to this day, I feel like I have connections in every city in the world because we have this online group of people who, undergrads and graduates who have gone to school there, and we just put a message out, like, I'm going to this city anywhere in the world. Somebody give me a list of recommendations. Oh, and can I stay with you or whatever? And they say yes. And when people reach out to me, I do the same thing for them. And it's a really, a really cool network to be a part of. So that, that was amazing. And I met some amazing people and some great friends there that I'm still, like, really tight with to this day. Um, so that that was amazing. Um, it was a year-long program. But after that year, I was not ready to come back yet. <laughs> I was like, there is there is some more time here for me. And I had, at that point, really solidified my love for Riesling. Um, it had happened pretty, pretty heavily in Portland, where I knew that was the grape that I was most excited about. And I, I was... I was looking at everything in wine through the lens of reasoning. That's kind of how I work with things in my brain. It's like, okay, I'm going to study wine, but I'm going to study wine based on this idea of, of like this particular grape so I can focus in on it and really learn a lot about this one thing and specialize on this one thing. Um, and I had previously, um, because of my connections at Ned Ludd, done a lot of work with Brooks Winery. Um, Janie was an amazing person to to be in the Riesling world alongside. She's just a dynamic and smart and just really, she was really a great mentor to me as well early on in my Riesling days. She's so good at connecting people and networking and that sort of thing. And I had worked harvest at Brooks to learn more about Riesling in 2010 and 2011. Not the full harvest because I was going back and forth from the, um, the restaurant world, but you know enough to kind of get my my feet wet and learn how hard it was to do harvest. <laughs> enough to realize how big of a deal it was. Um, and so, because of those connections with Riesling and um, and with Janie, and through my time in kind of the Riesling world before I got there, I had connected with Ernie Lozen from Dr. Lozen, and he was always a great friend to me. So when I started thinking about wanting to stay in Europe, I knew I wanted to do something with Riesling. And I got in touch with Ernie and I said, hey, can I come be an intern for, for Dr. Lozen while I'm in Europe? Because I need to, I had to do a, an internship for my master's thesis. So that worked super well. Um, I was like, I need to go somewhere for six weeks and you know, write a research paper and it'll be January in Germany. Uh, how does that sound? He's like, come on over. So after leaving school in Italy, I went from Piedmont to the Mosul. Uh, I, I lived in a tiny village called Vingeroer, which was over the hillsides from Erzink, uh, where the Mosul River is located. And it's a, it's, there's the iconic winery on the river, and then there's the bigger place where they produce a lot of other stuff too. Um, and so I was living in a little apartment above the winery and had a little bicycle that I'd ride my bike to, you know, go get provisions or go sightseeing or go taste wines or whatever. And uh, it was January and it was cold and it was really snowy. But luckily, this was 2013. Uh, they had done ice wine that year. So the day that I arrived in January, they were still pressing ice wine. So I was like, perfect. This is great. We're still in harvest. <laughs> So I helped finish the 12s um, and I worked in the cellar and just a tiny bit in the vineyard, but mostly in the cellar work to see how all the wines were finished in kind of the late winter and early spring because that's such an integral part of Riesling work. And that, that time was really cool, um, just seeing 
seeing these iconic old you know producers I got to visit so many interesting people that were just making beautiful wines in these hundred year old barrels in the traditions they had been doing it for for decades for centuries uh, it was really cool and Ernie introduced me to tons of people and he would throw great parties and he would always try to, to blind me on wines but he would always blind me on Berthier Bordeaux I'm 1982, so it was always just epic wines. But he would always blind me on the A2 of Bordeaux, so every time I guessed it, he was kind of blown away. But I think he forgot he was he kept doing the same one. <laughs> I loved every minute of it, though. It was some of the best wines I've ever had. Um, but yeah, he was he was great and so generous with his time and and with his wines, and that was a really special part of of being in Germany. So after um, after that internship was over. I asked if I could stay on to, until the summer and continue writing my paper. I just kept pushing off through my student visa um, as long as I could. Every three months I would get another um, extension. I was like, well, if I'm working still, you know, if I'm still a student, if I don't graduate, you can't make me leave yet. So it's just like, I'm just going to keep this internship forever. Um, but around summertime, uh, it was, I, I did a little bit of traveling and then um, I had made friends with Johannes Selbach at Selbach Oster. And Johannes, uh, he was like, yeah, come work for me for harvest. And it was, he was like, it's going to be picking grapes. It's going to be in the fields the whole time, which was a different perspective than at Lowe's and I had been in the winery the whole time. So it was really cool to, to go out into the vineyards during the harvest time. And each vineyard in Germany in the Mosul takes several passes because they do the different um, sugar levels and ripenesses of wines. Mm -hmm. So some vineyards we would touch seven times and just pick certain grapes that were ready. And I was working with this crew of Polish women who were the funniest ladies that I've ever met in my life. They were so strong and they would just climb those mountains and pick those grapes like effortlessly. And I'm just trying not to die the whole time. I mean, some of these are 45 degree angles with slate and you're just sliding the whole time. And their advice was, you need to be a starfish if you fall. If you're a starfish, you won't roll down the mountain. And I was like, wait, what now? They're like, don't grab the vines, they're delicate. They're like, don't pull the vines down the hill with you, like starfish. And I was like, okay, I'll try not to die, thank you. Yeah, these grandmothers just telling me these, yeah. It was awesome. So these wonderful ladies, you know, showed me how to how to pick the grapes, and then you know we did we did a lot of vineyard work out out there that year. Um, I was in the cellar a tiny bit, but for that it was just a really special time to to be through that. And we did ice wine that year as well, and so the harvest went all the way through the parts of just freezing temperatures. And one of the coolest moments was when we did that middle of the night pick for our ice wine, um, where we had, we had taken these rows and just kind of wrapped them with this um, almost like saran wrap with tiny holes in it, so the, the air still gets through and they don't mildew, but it protects them from the birds because there's no leaves on the vines at all. They're bare with these beautiful golden grapes that you don't want the birds to eat. Uh, so I remember unwrapping the plastic wrap and just picking these tiny golden clusters that were so dried out. And we just picked them for hours that night from all of these rows. And I think by the end of it, I had one five gallon bucket filled. And I was just like, this is all I have. But it was a very heavy five gallon bucket. These little guys were dense. And it was just like, I don't feel like I have enough. But then you look at the process of making ice wine and how precious it is and these small bottles. And you're like, oh, I get it now. There's not much of this stuff. That's why <laughs> it's really special. Um, so after that year in Germany, my love for Riesling had, had been taken to another level. Um, I knew I was all in. I knew it was something that I wanted to 
be part of, and I loved the Riesling people. They're my favorite kind of all the wine people, and I, I wanted to be in that world. So I'm gonna drink some water, actually. Thirsty, talking a lot. All right, so I left Germany and came back to Oregon. I knew I wanted to be back here, and I had um, formed a cool relationship with Brooks, with Janie and Chris, and also um, Jason French from Ned Ludd had been very good friends with Jimmy Brooks, Janie's brother who started Brooks Winery. And so I had heard stories for years and years about Jimmy Brooks from Jason. He would just constantly be talking about him. Uh, Jimmy's friends would come into the into the bar at Ned Ludd all the time. Tad and and all of these just wonderful people. Lee, they would they would come and just like tell stories about Jimmy. And I kind of feel like I had never met Jimmy Brooks, but I felt like I had this insight to him through all of his friends and through just being around his winery and drinking a bunch of his wines. And I was really drawn to that and the idea of Brooks being. Um, you know, thoughtful and sustainable and focusing on Riesling. I, I felt like that's where I had to go work. I felt like that was my next step. And so I called Janie right when I got back from Germany and I said, hey, uh, I have an idea. I'm gonna come to Oregon and talk to you, but I think you should hire me. And it was at that point, it was she and Chris. Uh, Chris was the only full-time guy. Davin, who had been working there part-time in the cellar, had been there for years and part-time in the cellar and tasting room. So they didn't really have any full-time employees. Um, and I was like, I don't know if she's gonna bite on this, but I'm gonna give it, give it a good try. So I was like, look, this is what I'm gonna do for you. Just like told her this thing. I was like, I know you love wine education. I'm gonna figure out something to do and teach people about Riesling through, through the lens of Brooks. And you know, they, they made tons of single vineyard Rieslings. And it was really cool seeing the different examples of, of terroir in, in, an, in kind of a style you'd almost see in Alsace, but done here in, in Oregon. So I, I got in touch with her and she was like, yeah, come talk to me. We have a lot to talk about, I think. So I flew up here and met with Janie and she was like, oh yeah, uh, you're hired. And this is what we're doing. We're building a new winery. I was like, oh, okay, cool, that's amazing. She was like, you're gonna kind of be boots on the ground here while we build the winery. I'm gonna be, you know, still doing national sales and back and forth, and Chris is, has to keep doing the winemaking, so like, let's work together and, and do some stuff. And so, I didn't know exactly what my role was, but I was like, okay, yeah, I can do whatever. I can work in the tasting room, I can help make wine, like whatever needs to happen. And uh, at Brooks Winery, what it is today is this, showcase winery that's absolutely beautiful and I got to be part of making that happen which feels really good um, it was it was exciting kind of seeing that kind of project of that massive scale from the ground up um, getting to be the person that helps put in systems and hire people and implements things and and just being part of, of logistics in that way while also you know structuring these wine classes that, that I could do and education and different sorts of dinner and I did this um, different wine series like a, a wine Sunday school where we would learn about wine in different interesting ways and vineyard tours and it was it was great Janie gave me a lot of freedom to really run with um, with the ideas that I had and it, I learned a ton working with those guys um, so I was with Brooks for three or four years and um, during that time I was doing a lot of stuff with the Eola Amity uh, marketing committees and 
the Winery Association. I was a marketing member and a board member for some things. Um, and I started hanging out with Ken and Erica quite a bit because Ken and Erica were very involved in these things because we were all in Eola Amity together and very passionate about this, this one specific place. Um, so I knew Eola Amity for me as far as the Willamette Valley was definitely the place I wanted to be. It was the wines that I liked the most were all from Eola Amity at that point and probably still are in the Willamette Valley. So Ken and Eric and I had been working together on Eola Amity projects and um, one day they started talking about they had finally grown big enough to where they wanted to hire somebody and they were going to start looking for somebody and like let, let me know if you hear of anybody that's looking for something and I was just like stop right there you guys <laughs> hold the phone like don't tease me like this you're hiring me and they were like you're everything's good at Brooks like you're you don't want to leave there like I was just like no like I really believe in you guys' wines and Brooks is in a really good place and everything was really solid with the new winery and I felt like it was in a spot where I could transition and leave that in a really good spot and and come help Walter Scott um, build some things in a really cool way Ken and Eric are so dynamic and their wines are, are really amazing and and they're just exceptional people and Erica had been a wine mentor to me for a very long time and it just felt right it's just one of those moves that was like this is this is where I need to be like these people are my family and then this is where I want to spend my time and so I was like you know everything's great about this you guys we had a big meeting we talked about a lot of things and I was like, you know, the only the only thing is you guys don't make Riesling. So can you make some Riesling so I can sell it and I can keep my foot in the Riesling world? Because I still want to go to the city of Riesling and the Riesling Rendezvous and I want to go to the Riesling Down Under and all the events and all the things. But like, I need to pour something at these events. You have to make, make a single vineyard for like, make 25 cases of something, make one barrel. I don't care. Just give me something to sell. And Ken looks at me like I was crazy and he was like, make your own damn Riesling. I'm not making Riesling for you. And I was like, what? Come on, man. He was like, no, make your own Riesling. He was like, come to work for us. I'll help you. You're making Riesling now if you want to make Riesling. And I was like, okay. And it was something that, you know, I had had in the back of my mind as like a maybe eventually kind of thing. But at that time, it was not part of the plan. Um, but it was something that I really was excited about. And just the possibility, the door just flew wide open and Ken pushed me through it pretty much. Like he was the driving force in, in my Riesling project. And he has always been amazing in the fact that he wants me to follow my passions and, and be excited about the things that I'm excited about and gives me a vehicle to do that. Um, so, so Ken and Erica, you know, have allowed me to use their cellar and their equipment and, you know, just make my wine and help me with it. And it's, it's been amazing. I've learned so much. And for me, the, the grand plan with Riesling, it's not like I want to have some Riesling empire where I make 400 different Rieslings. I'm, I, I want to learn everything I can. It's always been that thing of like focus in through wine, through one thing and learn everything you can about that thing. And making Riesling, I've learned more about it than than any other way that I've studied wine. And as many harvests as I've worked at this point, it's different when you make the decisions. It's different when it's your money and your call and it's your fault if it gets messed up. And it's a very different game when 
you know, other than just like doing what you're told in a cellar or following a function. It's like, all right, what are we gonna do? So um, this will be my, this fall will be my sixth vintage of Pierce Riesling. Um, it's a project that has been so amazing. The most I've done, I think, is 225 cases. It stays around there, kind of ebbs and flows a little bit from that. I've been working with one vineyard the whole time. I felt like having something consistent, having a constant in my experiment has been really important to me because I've learned more about the process itself when I have one thing at least that is the same. So I started thinking about where I wanted to get fruit and you know, Brooks gets some of the, the best old vine Riesling in the valley and they do a great job with it. And I was like, I'm not gonna go competing with Brooks for old vine Riesling, you know, that they, they're doing a great job and like, what am I gonna do that's different than what they would do? Um, and so I started thinking about the places that I really loved and the Columbia Gorge kept popping into my head. And there's not a ton of Riesling in the valley in the first place. You know, we are Pinot, we are Chardonnay, we're starting to get some, uh, a lot of other varietals, but, but Riesling is not, is a drop in the bucket. So when I started looking in the gorge for Riesling, I knew I wanted to be on the Oregon side. That was really important to me. I'd been working in Oregon wine, I'd been working in Oregon restaurants, Oregon marketing, the Oregon wine industry. Um, that's where my home was, that's where my people are. I wanna stay in Oregon wine, so finding something on that side of the river was really important. And I had talked to a handful of people and heard from a few folks, go see, go see these folks over at Van Horn. And so I met them. Um, I met John Stellick and Steve and a handful of those guys who've been um, farmers in the gorge for five generations. They grow pears. And um, in 2007, they decided to take part of their pear orchard and plant some grapes, and Riesling is a huge part of that. They were really excited about Riesling, and it does super well in the gorge at this place where it is. It's in the what they call it the Fruit Loop. So if you're going in Hood River, just up 35, there's all of these apple trees and orchards and pears everywhere and a handful of vineyards. And Riesling does very well there. It has almost this like alpine meets river feel in that part. You know, it's 10 minutes from the water, so you still get this influence of the river. It's, you know, you could see Adam's and Hood from each side of the vineyard, which way you look, it's a magical spot. And, and the Riesling just like has this acid, this electricity up there that's really inspiring. So I started working with those guys um, and have just become great friends with them over the years. They're the best people. Um, they make great wines as well, but pears are their, their thing, and it's, it's really cool to see other things growing together. I think that's something that's really interesting is, is biodiversity in a way that, um, that you don't always see in vineyards, like having the orchards next door, having other things growing together is, is super important. So um, yeah, it was, I just, it felt like the right place. So I buy the grapes from Van Horn Vineyard. Um, I always go pick them up every year and truck them down to Walter Scott, which is one of the scariest drives of my year. Just don't, not, don't drop the grapes on 84, the name of that game. And, um, and then process them and make the wine at Walter Scott. And Ken and Erica have always been great to help me. And then Kathy McBride, who is our Australian assistant winemaker, who's wonderful. Um, she made some Riesling in Australia. She's helped me along the way. I've gotten crazy advice from all sorts of people. You know, um, it's been amazing. Like Ian Birch, who's over at Archery Summit, has given me a ton of advice through the years. Claire Giroux at Brooks, she's been a, 
a great sounding board for some things. And, you know, I'm lucky to have this network of amazing Riesling people in my life that I can learn from and that I can talk to about things. And even some of my friends in Europe, you know, I'll, I'll lean on them when I have questions about stuff and just like, hey guys, what, um, what do you do when this happens? You know, and, and it's great. But, um, but yeah, for me, it's all about education. So my project Pierce Wines is, um, you know, one single vineyard Riesling done in a style inspired by the Mosul. So I like a little bit of sugar in the wines if it has enough acid to balance it out. I like wines feeling electric and I feel like um, I've been doing that pretty consistently and feel more confident about it every year. Uh, I started doing some experimental stuff, which I mean the point is continuing to learn. So. Uh, that's what I'm doing and this year I've got a 350 liter barrel with 60 gallons of lees from 2019 put in the 350 liter barrel with 2020 Riesling and so I'm doing a one-year extended barrel age with no stirring and just seeing how the textures can change based on the vessel and based on the lees contact and it's really it's really something special it's really uh, exciting to see this style um, that I absolutely love. It's a drier style than I usually make, but it's, um, it has this energy to it that I really like from it as well. Um, so, so that was the 2020 experiment. This year I'm looking at doing a co-ferment of some pears from the, the orchard along with some Riesling, co-fermenting those together and, and seeing what comes of it um, and making a, a fruit wine. And I think that as we kind of go through different phases in our wine industry, you know, because this still is the Wild West in a lot of ways, we can experiment a little more than a lot of places. I mean, obviously you put that on the label, you want to be transparent with it all. I'm not trying to sell it as Riesling, it'll be, it'll be a different thing. But it's, it's great to see wineries that are stepping out of that box. I think Hiyu is a really cool one out in the gorge that's inspiring to me of, of someone who thinks about the bigger picture of land and the biodiversity that you see on a farm all working together to create something. Um, and and, and as we as we go through climate change, we're going to have to start thinking of different ma ways to make wine and different ways to um, to sustain our industry. And it might not always be with the grapes that we think it's going to be. It might not always be with the styles that we think it's going to be. But it's all about learning. It's all about trying new things. And so for me, that's what Pierce Wines has given me is education and the ability to try things on my own that I, I couldn't do just working in someone's cellar. So that's been really exciting. Um, and then I started teaching at Linfield along the way somewhere in there as well. Um, so Ellen Britton was working as the, uh, the director of the Wine Studies program and I was really interested in teaching. Um, that was one of the things in my master's degree that I kind of focused on as well as like kind of the aspects of education throughout that and I got in touch with Ellen and told her that I wanted to do something and she brought me on as one of the first online instructors for the wine studies program. I might have been the first one actually and I was doing an intro to wine business and I had this um, this really cool platform of just like how to start your business in the wine industry as I was doing it at the same time which was interesting for me because I was like alright I'm gonna learn how to do this and I'm gonna teach y'all how to do this let's go <laughs> and it was a really fun way to, to do it because it was the actual process of doing it along with lots of other things that you know are focused on wine business but it was great working with that program um, 
there, there are a lot of amazing people that I've met through my time at Linfield as well that have just helped me through the way and, and made me a better teacher as well. Jane Wilde being one of them, the online teaching lady, she is absolutely phenomenal and has gotten me up to speed on like how to teach online, which has been a, a great asset to have, especially now that a lot of classes are moving to online regardless of if you want to be taught online or not. Um, so that's been great. I'm going to be teaching the geography of wine starting this fall. And that's something I'm super excited about is, is the place where wine is grown, but also kind of incorporating my background with cultural landscapes into geography and talking about the people in the place and why, why things happen in the places they do. I also really like the idea of talking about how things get away from the places where they started. And the geography of wine, I think, is important as the place where a grape grows, but also where do people, where the people live that drink this wine, and why does it go to that place? You think about local, 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 but then you know we're buying a ton of French wines, a ton of European wines. You know, everything I eat every day is grown within 30 miles, and then the wine I drink is is tons of miles away. It's it's a weird concept. So why is that? So I'm I'm very interested in that idea. Um, and the, the things that go along with it. So Linfield has been great for that because it's, it's given me this foot in the door in a bigger picture of education. So I've always enjoyed teaching classes and always enjoyed kind of the winery side of bringing that accessibility to people. But, but now I have the opportunity to do that on a, on a scale that's, you know, different than that. It's mm -hmm. cool. Mm -hmm. That's a good answer to a question that I really didn't mean to ask. That's quite an introduction. While you're drinking, I'm going to do a quick introduction here. You already introduced yourself. My name is Rich Schmidt. It's August 12, 2021. It's 100 and some degrees in the valley today, so Jess had the amazing idea of meeting here at the Oregon coast. So we're here at Rhodes Inn State Park, Lincoln City, doing this interview, uh, sitting in the sand with the ocean in our back. Uh, not too bad of a day. So I'm going to take you back a little bit. Um, you answered most of my questions already, but I'm going to, I want to back up a little bit. I want to talk about wine education for you, your, your actual education in wine, because you went through it a lot of different ways. You had restaurant training, you had formal sommelier training, you had then you had winemaking training. Tell me about what it was at first about wine that kind of pulled you in. What, what was exciting about wine? And, and as you were learning, what did you find was the most, what did you get the most information from, the most knowledge from? What was the most helpful part of learning wine for you? Um, the most helpful part about learning wine from me, for me was travel. Travel and tasting in the places and meeting the producers and going into their cellars and putting their wine in my mouth while they tell me about their lives, about why they're the place they are, about when the cellar was built hundreds of years ago. Like that's one of the coolest part. And still to this day, going to wineries where you get to taste with the people who are making the wine is, is really educational. I feel like formal training was very important as well because having the formal training as a base to go off of when I did do these visits and when I did the travel, like knowing, having an expectation, setting that for myself and, and knowing the area already, knowing these maps, like moving to Piedmont and looking at a map that I know to the back of my hand, taking tests on this map of Piedmont and now I'm there and I'm like, oh, we should turn right here because that, that's the, where that vineyard is. People are just like, what? It's like, well, I don't know. You memorize maps and stuff. It's cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, having that formal training and then actually going to the places, like having those hand in hand were, were pretty epic for me. Um, I went through the 
quarter of masters uh, up to my certified level, I started doing the ISG, um, International Sommeliers Guild. I got my diploma in that, and then I moved on to the WSET. And so I'm at my diploma level of WSET right now. Um, I took a pause during COVID uh, and haven't started back up yet, but I'm halfway through that diploma program. And I'll probably start it up eventually, but it's just not super high on the list right now. Um, I feel like I have a lot of things that I'm learning right now, and I'll just put that to the side while I'm doing more practical stuff and probably ebb back and forth because that's the way I've usually done things in my life. You talked about some of some of the things that excited you about wine. I'm curious, why, why wine is in, in, instead of food or, or something else? Why was wine, and even specifically Riesling, the lens you chose to kind of explore the world through? You can't help what you like. You can't help what you gravitate towards. I mean, everybody's got some weird things about them, and Riesling's my weird thing. Maybe some other things too, but one of them. Um, Riesling was unlike anything I had ever tried in my life. Unlike anything I had ever tasted. Like it, it can be so many things. It could be dry, it could be sweet, it could be sparkling, ice wine, like in, it could be anything. You could do anything with Riesling. Um, the versatility of it, and it's delicious in every aspect. And people joke around a lot that Riesling's kind of a starting point for people that are drinking wine because it's sweet and can, kind of accessible. And then you go through your phase of like you get into the other whites and you go into the reds, and then you get into your big reds, and then you circle back around. The next thing you know, you're drinking Riesling again. And I feel like that's, for me, it was true in a little bit of that because I did follow that art, but then the whole time I was still drinking Riesling. When it was something that's like, okay, I'm tired of studying for this test, I just need a glass of wine, I grabbed a glass of Riesling. It was the thing I gravitated towards, subconsciously sometimes even. And the people that I gravitated towards happened to be Riesling people. Maybe I'm putting myself in their paths because I'm drinking their wine, but it was a, a relationship that was symbiotic with the Riesling world and me for a long time. Um, and yeah, just the friends that I started drinking wines with early on in my, my wine drinking were, were drinking Riesling too. Um, so it was, it was a beautiful introduction over time that just stuck with me. And I don't know why wine in general. I mean, probably the same reason, you know, it's just, it's one of those things that like, you can't, you can't help where you gravitate. And I had thought about going into food a little bit more, but food for me was a little bit different. Um, I grew up in a household where my father cooked a lot um, and it was big parties. He would do big seafood boils. Everyone would come over like every weekend and hang out for days and it would be barbecue and it would be one thing after another, these big presentation, kind of low country, but delicious food events that were all, everybody we knew just came over and ate for most meals. Um, and so I wasn't really part of the cooking when I was growing up. We didn't really go to restaurants. It was always my dad cooking. Um, for certain things, we would go to restaurants, but not, not in general. And so I was always the one that was prepping vegetables for my dad and cleaning up the kitchen. And so it made me not want to be involved in cooking because it was just a chore. I enjoyed eating, but it was like, oh, cooking, it's just cleaning and all of this prep. But I wasn't doing the fun part. Uh, and so whenever I got out of my parent, when I left my parents' house and started living on my own, I was working in restaurants. So I ate family meal at the restaurants. So, you know, poor college students, like, I'm going to eat my biggest meal of the day at 4 p.m., uh, you know, standing up next to a trash can with five other people. And that's, that's how I lived my life. You know, I worked at Smoothie King, so I drank smoothies every day. Um, and, and that was fine. I would just drink smoothies all the time. That was my life. Uh, and then it was, it was when I moved to Italy 
um, I started thinking about food preparation a little bit more. And, but I lived with two chefs. Two chefs were my roommates, so they would do all the cooking, and it was back to me, cleaning and prepping. Just like, oh, this sucks. <laughs> but when I moved to Germany, I was in this little village. There were no restaurants. I was by myself, and I was just like, oh, I'm hungry. What's going to happen? But I had been around food, so I was like, well, I, I know how to make food. I could put this together, and I really started cooking for myself when I lived in Germany. Um, and started, and I, I cook a ton now. That's something I really enjoy. That's a huge part of my life. But it's it's more of a, um, it's not a chore at all. It's something I really enjoy and really enjoy feeding people as well. And I think that comes from kind of my Southern upbringing as well. Just like, oh, you came over, here's food. I, I'm gonna take care of you now. Uh, but yeah, it, it, food just never seemed like the career path for me because I feel like I really got into cooking later in life. So you had you had an impression of, of wines from Oregon from your from your work in restaurants, but mm -hmm. I'm curious when you got to Oregon, what was your initial impression of the industry here as you got to know people and see the place and see the wines? What did you think about the Oregon wine industry that you had kind of entered into? One of the things that really stood out to me in the Oregon wine industry was the all ships rise with the tide kind of mentality that I had not seen before in an industry that was competing with each other. Especially at that time when I moved here in um, 06 or 07, um, there were not as many wineries, but everyone had to work together because we were all trying to fight for the same thing. We all wanted more people to visit. We all wanted Willamette Valley to be an important wine region. and. We all had to go places together and teach them about the Oregon wine industry if we wanted anybody to pay attention to us. Um, and that was something you had to do collectively, especially because of money. There wasn't enough money for everybody to, to like just go around and, and do marketing trips even. Even back in the day, um, there, was, there was this like, I feel like somebody told me this really funny story might get some of the details wrong, but um, Alabama was a big market for the early Oregon wine industry because somebody's cousin had a distributor business down there. So collectively, some of the Oregon wine industry guys would go down and sell their wines together, and they would do um, this tour called Two Dicks and a Dave. And it was, you know, the pioneers of the Oregon wine industry going down to Alabama and selling Oregon wine back in the 70s and 80s. And, and that was such a cool story to me because I was like, these guys who are working completely against, like, completely against each other, you're making the same thing in the same place. You're going to go sell your wine next to each other across the country? What's wrong with you? But they did that collectively and they shared information and they, they showed people like what Oregon can be. And it was such a cool thing to have that collaboration that people hadn't seen before. And I felt that when I first came down here. I had so many doors open to me by people that were just excited about me wanting to be engaged in their industry. Just like, oh, you want to come taste? Like, come on, let's do this. Enthusiasm. It just went such a long way with with my enthusiasm for it, it was contagious. Just everybody was excited to be here, excited to be learning, excited to be sharing their wines, and it felt like we were all doing it together. So that was one of my initial impressions of the Oregon wine industry. And I mentioned that IPNC, the first salmon bake I went to, that was a big example of that. After the dinner part of the salmon bake was over, just walking around and having people coming up to me with magnums and three liters and just like, hey, taste my wine. This is really cool. Like, thanks for coming out. I was just like, where am I? This is awesome. <laughs> Who are these people? Adult Halloween. Exactly. It felt like it. It really did. 
Um, so, so yeah, those initial impressions have gone a long way with me. I know our industry has changed a lot, um, but you still see that sentiment pretty deep rooted here. I feel like even with a lot of the newcomers, they've done it right and kind of come in from the from the inside and hired within with people who know the industry and I feel like our industry is stronger because of some of the pillars that we have that have been here for a long time just kind of waving that flag of camaraderie yeah and there is competition of course you know as the industry goes grows it always gets harder and there are more politics involved I mean that's with anything but in the grand scheme of things we're just little we can still be a cool community so obviously you had you had kind of seen wine from every angle from from consumer from consumer side and from educated side and you got into making it you got into hospitality all of that did you have you mentioned that kind of the, the notion of making your own wine was kind of a surprise to you or kind of a, mm -hmm. you're kind of you're kind of thrown into it um, tell me about production from your kind of initial impressions of production uh, was it something that you enjoyed was it something that you wanted to come back to or, or was it something when you when you got to do it for yourself was it kind of were you, were you surprised that you enjoyed it you know the surprise of enjoying it it's, it's hard work it's manual labor um, but there's something to be said about having this thing that you start, that you manipulate or make or do something with, and then you have something different that comes out the other end of it that's tangible. And I felt like that when I was younger and did a lot of art stuff where you know, you would you would take this block of bronze and you turn it into a sculpture. And that, that resonates with me with wine. You turn these grapes into something delicious. Um, I've always been kind of the idea, I think there's a couple of different perspectives you can look at wine in. You know, like some people's goal is like make the best wine possible, right? Like do a do a service and respect to the land, to the farmers, to the grapes. I totally believe that as well. But I think there's kind of another way too that I like to think about is make a make a beverage a pleasure, make something delicious. The delicious factor I think goes such a long way with not having to think too hard about something and and you know it can be serious or not but just having that like pleasurable response in your brain just kick in when you taste wine and that has always been my goal with wine and it might not be the best wine in the world in fact i know it's not the best wine in the world but i think it's absolutely delicious and i get really excited when i drink it and i've seen other people have the same reaction so that for me is is a reason to continue because it, it it has that just instant gratification of like wow i i did this thing and i made it and it's fun and it's so good um but the the process of doing it is really difficult you know harvest is hard it's hard on your body you know over the years you know i'm i'm almost 40 now and i can't do the things i used to do you know 11 years ago when i worked my for, first harvest um, it's it's a different world out there but i think the thing about it is when you're actually doing that sort of work you get so satisfied by having this end result even from day to day during harvest it's like all of a sudden there's this mountain of grapes just looming over you tons deep waiting for you to process it at the end of the day you go to bed you lock up the winery there's a tank full of juice and you're just like whoa that, I, I did that today. That feels really good. You know, on some days I, I do wine club software and spreadsheets all day, and it's not this, it's not satisfying in the same way to click your spreadsheet at the end of the day after you filled it up. 
It's just not. There's something to be said about that process of making that I feel is, is so cool. Even if it's not even my own thing, but just working a harvest or working in a cellar and being part of that. And then even later on drinking that bottle and being like, oh yeah, that's so cool. Like I'm in there somewhere. <laughs> maybe not literally, maybe. <laughs> How's our battery? Good? Okay. So we obviously do a lot of these interviews and, and we talk about Pinot Noir an awful lot, as you can imagine, mm -hmm. and, and, and the kind of its, its, its sort of inherent uh, challenges and, and all of that. We don't get to talk about Riesling a whole lot. So, so tell me about Riesling as a producer. Um, what is it, what are the, what are the challenges of, of making it and what is kind of the philosophy you've developed about, I mean, you've talked a little bit about kind of what you want the end product to be. Yeah. What is the kind of the philosophy you've developed about making it the, the, the way you want to make it? Um, my philosophy is don't try to do anything crazy until you learn the basics, right? Like, I need to learn how to technically make good wine first before anything else. And so I mentioned using this one vineyard as the, the constant, right? So I have this thing that I kind of have an idea of what it's going to come in as. I know kind of what sugar I'll be dealing with, kind of how this Riesling acts in fermentation. I don't add any yeast to my wines, and so it's, um, you know, it's a native yeast thing, but also it's the last thing to come into the cellar um, because Riesling ripens later than Pinot and then Chardonnay that we do at Walter Scott. And so, you know, sometimes even weeks after we're done picking, I drive up with a load of Riesling and it's like, oh, clean the press again, it's time to go. <laughs> we're pressing down, you know, pressing off the reds and, and Riesling comes in the house. So there's a lot of ambient yeast going, there's a lot of action in the winery and so it never has a problem taking off. Um, I do a barrel ferment, so I'm usually doing eight barrels of wine. They'll take off ferments at different rates and then all behave very differently. So I think one of the things I've learned the most from Ken and Erica is the, the devil's in the details. Like the details matter and you have to constantly check on everything every day, especially during harvest, because things can change, things can go sideways, you know, bacteria can grow, things things can happen that you've never seen before that you're like, should we, can we drink that? I don't, I don't know. This kind of looks weird. Does it smell weird? And, and, you know, there are things you can do to fix that. And working with a winemaker like Ken, who I believe it's his 27th vintage, um, has been a dream because Technically, he is one of the best winemakers I've ever met. He's just very methodical, he takes great notes, he's very precise with things. And I think that technical winemaking is, is something that, that's something I've been striving to learn. I wanna, I wanna learn how to do it right, and then I feel like I can riff off of that afterwards. You know, like almost like a good jazz musician or something like that. You get your basics down, and then you can start the freestyle. And so I feel like this is why this past vintage was my first one where I really tried something out of the box, unlike my previous four where I was just, you know, kind of learning the technical aspect, like having a goal and, and getting to that goal intentionally. And the intention behind what you're doing in the cellar means so much because the result can vary um, if you just let it go one way or another. You have to have kind of that that really firm idea of what you want. And so for me, it's, it's what this vineyard is capable of each year. It kind of gives me a little bit different variation based on the year itself. You know, the terroir stays, you know, the, the soil is the same. The, a lot of things are the same, but like two years ago, we had a huge frost during um, harvest and 
and John has a pair of shirts, so he has these frost fans out there, and so it was so cool to see him turn the frost fans on to keep everything from freezing right before harvest. And it's just like, whoa, what's this going to do to the wine? Does it dry it out a little bit? Is it like concentrated? And just having these cool factors come into the mix that they're surprising that change how the wines behave. But ultimately, um, ultimately, I feel like with wine making, you know, I. I'm not sure where my journey is going to be through my Riesling project, but I do know that it's helped me learn how to do a lot of other things, you know, and how to be very precise and be technical in other aspects of my life other than winemaking. You know, if you, if you use that philosophy and approach and everything where you're paying attention to the details and being thorough with things and being intentional with things in your life, you're going to get better results probably if you pay attention to things a little more. And so that in the winery, that in life, it kind of all ties together. That is really interesting. If anybody's ever put it quite that way before, that's really fascinating. You didn't just lean into the frost and make some ice wine instead? It wasn't that cold. <laughs> it wasn't that cold. Just that morning frost that can make things kind of sideways. Just wanted to get a couple more days out of it. So with your own brand, once you decided to start making Riesling, tell me about the, 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 all the things that go into that, of, of uh, deciding on a name and deciding on a label and kind of a, a, the, the ethos and the presentation of the brand. Sure. And, and what it looks like now, is, is this what you anticipated when you started the label? This is not. I had an interesting turn of directions as I've been um, working with my Riesling. So naming it Pierce Wines, Pierce is my last name, and I thought it was very fitting because um, with some wine, wine thing that we went to, maybe a Riesling Rendezvous, a lot of people just call me by my last name, by my Pierce. And somebody was joking around when we were drinking one night and they were calling me Piercing Acidity or something like that. It was like, we were just coming up with stupid nicknames. It was silly. Um, but I was like, yeah, and I was like, ooh, that'd be a cool name for wine. I started thinking like Piercing Acidity, but then I was just like, nobody's people, that's a nerd joke. <laughs> that's not something you put on a bottle of wine. And I was like, but my last name is kind of good for that idea of like Pierce. It's like this like thing that Riesling does as a verb almost with how it presents on your palate. Um, it has this driving acidity, this precise laser kind of focus to it in a way that pierces. Um, so I was like, you know, it, it works. I'm just gonna use my name for it. Plus, who doesn't want their name on a bottle of wine, right? As a purely egotistical thing. Um, so I started, um, I started, you know, having choices to make. And I'm a 200 case producer. Guess how many choices I get? Like three. <laughs> and the whole part of the process, right? Like, I don't get to make huge decisions. I don't get to tell people how to farm their vineyards when I'm buying, you know, eight tons of fruit or something like that. Like, I don't, I don't get to make those big calls. But I do work with a grower who's amazing and is interested in what I'm doing. So he can work with me to, to try to have the best outcome for what I'm looking for, which is really cool. So working with that vineyard was a big choice because I get to work with somebody who, who likes what I do. Um, so that's one choice that I got to make. The other choice is making the wine at Walter Scott. I do have options where I could press my grapes up at the vineyard and bring the juice down to Walter Scott to ferment, but I feel like there's something very intimate about the pressing process and about how you're pressing and about how you're getting that wine into the vessel and how, how you're racking it. And, and if you're thinking of wine as a living product, then you're also thinking of wine in a way that's like, 
how, how do I not traumatize this living being through this journey I'm bringing through, right? Like, let's be as gentle as possible. And so I feel like bringing the grapes from the vineyard to Walter Scott and doing the most gentle job that I can to not traumatize this wine through its process in pressing, fermenting, and getting into the bottle. Um, the other choice that I get is if I ferment in steel versus wood, and I've really liked uh, neutral wood for the most part. I finish in steel sometimes, but I, um, I've done barrel ferments um, from Kenzel Chardonnay barrels for the most part, and I really like that interaction of a little bit of the oxygen, how the barrel kind of breathes with the wine as it ferments. I think that's super cool, and texturally, I feel like it gives it a little more dynamic feel. Uh, the last thing that I get to pick is the packaging that my bottle goes into. Um, I traditionally started working with Chinese glass, 750 milliliter hawk bottles, which are the long slender neck Riesling bottles that I'm sure you've seen. Um, and you know, recycling is what it is. It's a lot of chemicals and energy to turn glass back into glass. It's a pretty dirty process. Um, and so it's not something that I've always loved, but like, what do you do instead, right? I don't wanna make box wine. Like, I, I'm not sure what to do. I thought about, you know, everybody got crazy with the cans, but aluminum is a dirty source material when it comes down to it as well. And still we recycle and there's that. Um, and so one day I was, uh, I popped into Cooper's Hall to say hi to Joel and he was real excited that day about something and he was just like hey we need to talk about something uh, and he shows me this bottle of rosé that they bottled for a one-off project for something called Project Trevor um, which was a fundraiser and I think it was a rosé that they bottled up and they were bottled in 500 milliliter refillable crown cap beer bottles and I was like what's going on here and Joel tells me that the beer industry has taken up the refillable bottle program and they are using these bottles that are a little bit thicker glass that can be run through a sanitation machine 25 times um, and not recycled. You know, you recycle them at the end if they get too worn, but they can be reused. And that process was really exciting to hear about that somebody was doing it. And so I was like, well, why isn't the Oregon wine industry doing this? And I started doing a little research into it and I realized that years ago, someone tried to do it in the Oregon wine industry and there was a lot of pushback because there was a whole idea that people wanted AVA specific bottles. You know, there are some AVAs that have like a crest or like want a certain bottle shape or, you know, you have your classic Pinot style bottle. And if we all had to use the same bottle, which would have to happen early stages of refillables, you know, it'd have to be a standard size bottle to run through these machines and clean them. Uh, people didn't want that. They want to have their unique stamp on their stuff. So there's pushback early on and it was a you know, a more difficult idea when this first started. But um, I was like, well, I could use this bottle for my Riesling. I'm a producer who really only sells in Oregon and makes a more ready to drink style of wine. So it makes sense under crown cap in this bottle for what I use it for. Um, and I talked to Joel for a while about it and looked into the logistics and I decided to start bottling my production in 500 ml refillable beer bottles. So my first vintage to do that was my 2019 wines. Um, I bottled them on March 10th of 2020. I don't know if you know that date very well, but that's when COVID started. Um, we were, it was that weird time where we were just like, wait, does anybody have a mask? What's a mask? You know, it was, it's, something's going down, something's happening. And I had like a five person crew of my buddies and we hand bottled in this um, little six at a time bottling cart. 
these 500 ml bottles for it took us a whole day to get 200 cases in the bottle. It's kind of a pain in the butt, but it's totally worth it. And it's like, okay, I have this weirdo bottle size. Restaurants don't have glass pours anymore. Like, I don't know who I'm going to sell this to. Like, we'll see what happens. The world's ending. But it turned out this was the most exciting bottle size that you could have during COVID because this is a bottle that you could shove in your backpack, climb up a mountain, go to the beach. You don't need a glass. You don't need a corkscrew. I started having tons of people who were sending me pictures of their bottles like on top of a mountain, just drinking out of the bottle. Everybody's drinking out of the bottle like they're, they're drinking a beer. <laughs> like, what is going on? So unprepared for this, but I loved it. And I was like, you know, one of the cool things is wine being accessible. This is the most accessible bottle and it's, it's not a personal size because it's 500 ml, but a lot of people treat it like it's a personal size and it's 11% alcohol, so it can be a personal size bottle. And it's really, really fun to have, to have this thing that was unexpected that I wanted to do because it's a choice I can make for a bigger picture idea to get some excitement about the idea of coming up with a 750 mil corkable bottle for the wine industry and getting some attention around the fact that it needs to happen and that people want it. Mm -hmm. And that's what this is to me. I obviously would prefer to put my wine in a bottle with a cork in 750 mil. I, I think that size is great, but I'll continue to bottle in the 500 mils until we have a better option for the wine industry because I think it's important and it is one of the few choices I get to make as a producer that's on the scale. So yeah. Love that. What about your labels, designs? Obviously pretty interesting label designs. Where, where, did, where did they come from? And, and again, is it kind of what you expected as you set out? So whenever I first started my label, um, I obviously decided to go with my name. And my mom had a nameplate necklace, a lot like this one, um, that she wore all the time. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do a nameplate necklace as my label. I think it'll be really cool. My buddy, Sean O'Connor, who was my assistant manager at Ned Ludd, who now runs Kex. He is also a graphic designer, and I was like, Sean, I got no money for this, but I need you to make me a label. <laughs> I'll give you plenty of wine whenever I get some wine. He's like, all right, fine. So Sean designed my label for me, and you know, just he is super talented and came up with the right font and everything. And um, and my mom's necklace was different than this, but whenever I got um, my label started, my mom sent me this necklace. She had it designed based on the label, so now I wear this around and branding my own wine. Uh, but yeah, so I feel like it's gone really well. I feel like for me, it's a little bit, um, a little bit more modern of a label. You know, it's a gold chain with a black background. My um, my new label that comes out is going to be a gold background with a black chain on it for the, the special wine to kind of stay with that that theme but I feel like it it's part of who I am you know I, I want the bottle to look like me I wear black all the time I wear gold chains all the time like it's a man the bottle dress like each other it's just it's it's who I am it's Riesling and it's a little flashy and weird so that's that's why I wanted it to be like oh that's her wine for sure you can tell nobody else could have no that. one that's nobody's wine but Jess Pierce's that's for real so that's been cool, just like associating a brand with me um, and getting that to be kind of part of who I am too because I am so in the Riesling world. So having Pierce Riesling is, is really cool to be, to be a part of. So you obviously had quite a bit of experience with wine before you had your own wine to sell. Tell me about the experience of finally having a product with your name on it that was going out into the marketplace that you had to sell. Uh, 
Tell me about kind of the, 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 the emotion behind that as you're taking this bottle with your name on it out there and about the reception and where you, where you found it fit in. Mixed emotions, for sure. I was so excited that I just wanted everybody I knew to taste it. I was having Riesling parties, like pouring people wine from Magnums just in their mouths from above, you know, just like trying to make it fun. Um, my first wine uh, was a little more simple. It wasn't as dynamic, you know, it was my first try. It was, it was like, you know, well made, but, but not like, it didn't have quite that intention that some of my wines do now. And I remember thinking I just wanted it to be like a little bit more prickly. I'm like, Ken, what can we do? And he was like, well, we can sparge it with a little CO2 before we bottle it. Just like kick it up a notch for that. So it wasn't quite like chocolatey or vino verde, but it had this spritziness to it. The game changed it as kind of a party wine. And so I was like, oh, now it's now it's super fun and this beverage of, of pleasure again. You know, now I'm excited about it. So I was just like, you know, felt like I could stand behind it because I got really excited about it and could go out into the world and feel great about it. It makes it easy if you like what you're selling. If you can't stand behind it, you're gonna have a hard time selling it. People like enthusiasm. People like to to see to see what people are into, right? This is sharing our interests ultimately, and with this this wine I get to give people something I'm excited about and they usually get excited too so there definitely are people that aren't into it Riesling is a fight it's a slog um, as many Riesling conferences and education things I've been to there's always been the thing like how do we get people to drink more Riesling and ultimately it comes down to you have to get it into their mouths if you could get them to put it in their mouth, they're gonna love it forever. But so many people won't try it because they have a stereotype of like what Riesling is not anymore. It's sweet, it's gloopy. Leafrell Milch is not Riesling. Blue Nun was not Riesling. Like this is, this is not what we're talking about today. And it can be dry, it doesn't have to be sweet. If it is sweet, a lot of times it has so much acidity that it, it does not present sweet. And so it's very hard for the consumer to tell what Riesling is. It's very hard for the consumer to to know because there's not a lot of information on the bottle. But what I always tell people is look at the alcohol percentage. If it's 12 and up, it's gonna be drier. If it's 12 and under, it's gonna be sweeter. You know, and, and then like look at the place and, and you need to know your producers and there are you know, some sweetness scales and things like that that you can look at. But the alcohol percentage, I think, is just the one that nobody talks about. It's like during fermentation, sugar gets eaten and turned into alcohol. More alcohol, less sugar. It's, it's really cool to think about it like that. So educating people in Riesling is something that I'm committed to doing. And if I wasn't committed to doing that, I don't think I could stand behind selling Riesling. I pour a lot of taste for people and they get really excited when they actually taste it. So that's my, my sales mentality of just like get it in their mouths. And I specifically don't have Riesling on my front label of my bottle. Because I also feel like if you pick it up off a shelf, you're more likely to put it in your basket or take it with you, right? That's the, the first touch is, is, is the most important one in a retail scenario. And so if you have to pick up my bottle to turn it over and look to see about it and see what's in it, you already have it in your hand. Um, and so that's been one of my, my selling tactics as well, of just the way I've, I've presented that on the label. So you mentioned, uh, of course, bottling in March of 2020. Uh, talk about 2020 a little bit. Uh, when, uh, with uh, COVID rolling in right after that, uh, tell me about sort of your initial reactions to that, personal, professional, and what kind of adjustments did you have to make last year to, for, for the work you were doing? Last year was crazy for everybody. Um, it was really, really hard. I feel like I got very lucky in the fact that 
at my job at Walter Scott, Ken and Erica committed to keeping me on, and so I didn't have a feeling of job insecurity. Um, you know, they they were pretty adamant that you know we're going to work hard and make it through it all together, and I felt very very lucky to be in that position because I knew a lot of my friends at that time lost their jobs, especially my restaurant friends. None of them had employment, and there was a lot of insecurity through that. Um, food insecurity was something that I felt like just like. What if we can't get food? What if we can't go to the grocery store? I remember, you know, when we were in Hurricane Katrina going to the grocery store and there wasn't any food on the shelves. And then like that flashed back to me and I was like, is this that? And then you want to go into hoarding mode and you're like, no, I don't want to be a hoarder either. So, you know, I signed up for a CSA like right at that moment and was just like, I need to know that I'm getting food from a farm once a week. And I felt really lucky that I had the means to be able to do that because I was very privileged. But that right there, just like knowing I have a job and knowing that I have food were the two things that like, okay, I can get through anything because I have like the people around me that I need to have around me and we're all gonna eat some food and like everything else will work itself out. So having that support system was super important at that time. But then it was like, how are we gonna sell wine? Right? Like how we, we can't see people. Like my job was to go in the whole, into the wholesale market. I do all the sales for Oregon for Walter Scott, sales and deliveries. And it's like, how do you sell wine and deliver wine in a plague? And we figured it out, you know, it's, everybody turned to these like sample tasting kits, um, you know, just put several masks on and bundle up in a hazmat suit and go into the back of a grocery store and drop off wine and you figured it out. But the, the main thing we were really missing was our connection to the people that show up at the winery every day. That's one of the hard parts is having visitors and events. And you know, I'm a very social person and you know I've been in hospitality in, in restaurants and I feel like that hospitality approach is something that you know Ken and Erica and I have all been in restaurants and that's something we, we think is really important at the winery. And we couldn't do any of that. So we had planned on starting a wine club that was supposed to start in April of 2020. We had everything laid out, we had all the new software and all the stuff and all the plans. And then it was like, uh, none of this makes sense anymore. We need to go back to the drawing board. So Erica and I came up with a, a new style of wine club that was more of a subscription based kind of set up like a CSA and it was more like a sample bottle thing. One of the things I think, um, you know, Ken and Erica have taught me that is really important is don't forget where you came from. Don't, don't forget the retailers and the restaurants and the people that bought your wines early on because you know those guys that support you from the beginning like they're they're with you with the long haul the last thing we'd want to do is have this wine club that's like a ton of wine people aren't buying from their shops and buying from these local outlets and things like that we don't want the small wine shop to to die you know and it's it's interesting to be competing with your own wines and markets and so the wine club we came up with was was more like a one bottle or two bottles depending on the wine uh, once a month and so it was like we would do a Zoom, you get your sample bottle in the mail, you drink it with us on a Zoom that are these absolutely ridiculous Zooms that we do. <laughs> uh, Ken and Erica from the winery, me from my house, dogs and kids running around everywhere, you know, just like kind of a circus, but really, really cool. And we got to engage with the people that were part of our membership and we got to, you know, share our wines in a way that's not traditional in the normal tasting, but we were able to do that and we did, we did a few of the sample bottle kits um, for some of our local folks and then 
we, we you know, sent these bottles out and it was just really cool to see people respond so well to it. Um, and, and have that like touch every month where we got to have an experience together. And so that's, that's in the process of evolving now too um, because of the end of 2020, which I'm sure we're all aware of the, the smoke. 2020 is gonna be remembered as one hell of a vintage for sure. Um, Labor Day weekend, the smoke hit. We were converged by three, the smoke of three wildfires um, in Eola Amity, and we had smoke sit on us without moving for eight to 10 days. You couldn't tell there was a vineyard out there. It was really, really something. It was a time where we you know, were very uncertain about COVID. We're wearing masks. We can't see anybody. You can't go outside. Your house is smoky. It was, it was, it was terrible. I think for me, that was the worst part of 2020 was those few weeks at the beginning of September when there was uncertainty in other ways that we hadn't had because of this smoke. Um, and then going through harvest, the harvest that really didn't happen for us. I mean, with Walter Scott, you know, we were in a spot where some of our stuff was okay and some of it wasn't, and it was so weird. Just some vineyards were totally fine, some vineyards weren't. Some vineyards were messed up at different elevations, different blocks were affected differently, different grapes were affected differently. It was just a wild card how the smoke affected everybody so differently. And for 2020, you're gonna see beautiful wines coming out of 2020, and then you're gonna see a lot less wines come out of 2020. I think it's gonna run the spectrum for just one of the wildest vintage we've ever had. Um, so we ended up not making any red wine because the, the red wine you have to ferment on the skins to get that color and those compounds will get into the wine because most of the compounds are in the skin and you know that the idea about that is that maybe you could do white wine or pink wine and, and that's kind of where we put our focus and we were able to do a little bit of pink and white wine um, and make something good out of the year which we felt really great about. Um, but it was it was a hard hard struggle and just you know we were we were all out camping last month um, down in North Umpqua and it was like the week the bootleg fire started and all of a sudden the smoke kind of came through our campsite um, and we everybody freaked out it was that feeling of like your eyes are burning I'm coughing a little bit like I remember this from the fall and it was terrible and it's I think we're all gonna have some PTSD as an industry from this for a little while because it was it was really challenging um, but it could also be our new normal and if, if nothing else this was a year to learn I feel like a lot of people did a great job in doing experimental ferments, doing micro ferments, coming together and sharing information. This was one of those years where we've had a, a lot of, you know, pretty easy years for the most part in winemaking in Oregon. I mean, 13 was probably our last super challenging vineyard vintage, but um, I think that I think that 19 will will show the strength of our industry coming together to figure something out. And that's one of the things I love about Oregon is that we're, we're all in this together and we're not gonna be okay with wildfires unless we figure it out. So I think, you know, like I was talking about earlier with maybe some co-ferments or different grapes, different grapes absorb things differently. Like we're figuring that out now. And so you'll see a change in our industry. Climate change is real. Climate change is happening. It's getting hotter if nothing else. You know, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, they can be very different grapes in hot weather than in, you know, the cool weather and we're sitting out here on the coast in the 70 degrees but it's 40 degrees warmer in Portland right now and that's not normal for Oregon and this is not the first time this summer we've had it so 
we got to do things a little bit different. You know, remember when we first, when I first was in Oregon, they were like, oh, you have to like prune back all the leaves so the grapes will get sun and ripen. Now it's like, you put a canopy over everything. We need shade, you know, and there's so many things you could do. And, you know, agriculture is exactly that. We're manipulating everything. So we, we have to find ways to, to do that that makes sense for the place that we are, you know, the place that we're in. So you talked a little earlier about the changes you've seen, some of the changes you've seen in Oregon wine. I'm, I'm curious, from your perspective, uh, given all the last couple of years, and, and what, what what does the industry look like kind of now in 2021, and, and what do you see for the future of the industry as we eventually, hopefully, come out of a pandemic and and, uh, and, and take the next step forward? I feel like Oregon and the Willamette Valley specifically is now on the map on an international scale for the first time. You know, like we've, we've just got PGI status, which is a protected status that they use in Europe. Um, Napa and the Willamette are the only two in America that are recognized. And that, I feel like in a way we kind of made it, right? Like we all have been working for this of recognition of people, you know, when you talk about Oregon, like can you point to it on a map? They can now, they didn't, they couldn't before. No one could before. I don't think I could before I moved here. <laughs> um, but yeah, going to, a grocery store in the Midwest and walking in and seeing Willamette Valley Pinot on a shelf. That's where we are right now. And that is because some of these bigger brands have come in and started making wine, you know? And I think Jackson Family is the one that's kind of the big example for me of like, we had an outsider coming in that people, you know, were kind of nervous about. Jackson Family, it's like, wow, it's Kendall Jackson. It's this huge winery, like what's gonna happen? Our industry is ruined. And it's like, well, now I see high quality wines being sold around the country with the name Willamette Valley. Again, ships are rising with the tide. If you really believe that mentality, then when people come in, and especially when they do things right and they, they work with the local people and they, they acknowledge the history of what's been done in the place and they work with it instead of against it, it can be really something. And our industry has grown a lot over the last 10 years. It's, you know, really, really crazy to see that much growth within an industry and, and also that much success at the same time. Like people are doing well, they're making good wines. The wine quality is higher across the board because of the people that are here um, making good wines. And I want people to think of the Willamette Valley, Valley as a high quality wine region. Um, and we have that now. Mm -hmm. So that's where the industry is. And we've been working towards that for 50 years and we're, we're there, but it's never over because look at us now, everything's changing. We get there and then climate change and then smoke and then challenges. And it's like, okay, Oregon, you're good now. You think you're good? All right, let's see. Let's see what you're gonna do now. So I think again, we are the wild west. We can do anything out here. All we have to do is come together and collectively decide to do it ultimately. And that's such a cool thing to be able to see. So I think with our industry, you're gonna see other grapes other than Pinot Noir planted. I think that Chardonnay is gonna have its real heyday. I don't think we're even there yet. I think Oregon um, Chardonnay and also Lamp Chardonnay, like people that make it are really excited about it. A small kind of niche of consumers are excited about it. Restaurant people are excited about it. But not everybody knows about Oregon Chardonnay yet because we've been touting Pinot Noir for so long. I think Chardonnay is at the beginning of what is gonna be exciting for it right now. The Willamette Valley is one of the best places in the world to grow Chardonnay at the moment. Chardonnay is a little more versatile in its, its heat situation as well than Pinot Noir is, it can be. And 
And I think the real like cool white wine grape that's going to come out of Oregon is going to be Chardonnay when it comes down to it. Um, don't get me wrong, Pinot is our bread and butter, and I definitely love that. But you know, I think that there's some more exciting things that could happen here. I think you'll see lots of other varietals kind of taking their. I don't think Riesling will ever be like the dominant white grape of Oregon. Um, but, but I do think that people know what it is and are open to it now in ways that they aren't, as well as other grape varietals. They're, they're experimental. They'll drink out of different packaging. They'll drink grapes that they never heard of. There's more education to be had. As technology grows, there's more access to information. You could Google wines and find out about them. You can use different apps to get access to information. Wine is accessible in a way that it has never been in the entire world of wine. And because of that, people have more choices and more more freedom to experiment and and different price points can alienate people too and i think that you know other varietals can be a lower price point than pinot noir maybe get your foot in the door with something you know there's a lot of gamay in oregon well not a lot you're starting to see gamay in oregon um it's usually at a lower price point than pinot noir in some cases and and can get people in as kind of the gateway drug into pinot or something along those lines but there's a um yeah there's possibility here and but there's also a lot of thoughtful people too you know you would say that like oh we just plant a bunch more vineyards of different grapes but it's like well maybe grafting maybe we've taken up a lot of land maybe we need to leave some forests and change some vineyards over to different things or you know i don't know what the answer is but i know that some changes have to happen for sure um because the world's going to change one way or another so we got to keep up with it Well, on that note, what's next for you as you look ahead? Uh, what's what's coming down the pike, both personally, professionally, looking forward to, and and what are the kind of the next big milestones for you? Well, um, I'm planning on staying at Walter Scott forever, so hopefully <laughs> they agree with that because I'm never leaving them. Um, in some capacity or another, I'll be working with Ken and Erica for a long time. They're my they're my family, and they're wonderful and. I feel so lucky to be where I am right now with those guys. Um, I love having my foot in the door in education and I think long term um, wine education in different aspects will be something that I move towards and continue to do um, throughout my life. I feel, like, um, I feel like travel is really, really important to me. That's something I missed terribly this year and so I can't wait till that starts again because I want to have these really engaging experiences of, of connecting with people through travel, through food and wine while traveling and that sort of thing. Um, I, I'm, I've started sailing and sailing I think is, is something that really interests me and traveling the world by boat is an ultimate goal. And so I'm getting my sailing certification this spring and I'm going to try to start doing some sailing in, in little increments and then bigger ones and I think visiting people in that way might be the way of the future because I can just take a boat places. So we'll see how that goes. but. Um, but yeah, Riesling, Riesling has always been my huge passion and I'm, I will always be involved in that at some level. Um, but but I, do, I do a multifaceted approach at wine. I would be super bored if I was doing the same thing every day. Some days I'm selling wine, some days I'm delivering, some days I'm teaching about it, some days I'm working on spreadsheets, some days I'm making wine. You know, there's, there's a lot of different aspects of the wine industry and I feel really good about having a diverse perspective and a lot of different hats that I can wear through that.
kind of envisioning you like selling Riesling port to port as you sail, sail around the world? I think just have my barrels on the boat and just be tapping straight out of them. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. I, I see, feel like I could do this. I see nothing wrong with that idea. Yeah, that's, that's what I think I'm going to go for. Riesling on a boat. That's fantastic. Well, that's all the questions that I have for you today. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Is there anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? Oh my covered? God, I don't know. I feel like I talked a lot. <laughs> so that's sort of the whole goal here. So that, yeah. That's, yeah, that's great. Awesome. <laughs> cool, well, thank you. Well, that was fun. Well, thank you so much. That was fun. I really enjoyed that. And what a wonderful setting for it as well. This so, is beautiful. I'm so idea. glad not to be Portland in 106 degrees right now. <laughs> great idea. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time, for meeting us out here, and for sharing your story with us. And we'll let you off the hook. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.